When the rules of society are broken, things can get a little wild. This is Wild Society. I'm just joking. <laughs> Oklahoma City, what's up? How's it going? How are you guys? I'm Chad. I'm Courtney. I'm Jordan. And I'm Bethany. Welcome to Wild Society Live. Live. <laughs> this is our first live show ever. So thank you guys for coming. Means Courtney, so how are you doing? <laughs> I'm very nervous. It feels you. very surreal. Like it's... I. Earlier we talked about may, I might be blacking out, like I might just... <laughs> no, earlier this week, we're, this is what we got from Courtney on our phones. Holy shit. Holy shit. We're doing a live show on Sunday. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> so we're a little nervous, but mostly excited. And then there were like 17 text messages that said the same thing from her. It's true. But we got some really great news today. Uh, Jordan, you found out the news. Do you want to announce it to everybody? Oh, God, he doesn't know. <laughs> What's the news? What is it? Okay. Do you want me to? Oh, yeah. We are officially in the top 2% of all podcasts in the entire world. Yes. Because of you Thanks all. Thanks to y'all, yes. I forgot that little bit of news there. Yeah. You literally no just found it out 30 minutes ago, and he was like, what? We were I've had a Xanax and I'm about to have champagne. So <laughs> if I start drooling midway through, and he goes, he goes second. So there's a good chance when we go get to him, he's gonna be like, I go first. He goes first. I oh, go first. Okay. First. Well, and then he can pass out then. after. Yeah. So that's very exciting. Thank you to you all for making that happen. Yeah. So just uh, to kind of fill y'all in, our primary source today is from. Oklahoma Gay History, 1889 to 2005 by Aaron Lee Backhofer II. Um, he wrote a dissertation for Oklahoma State University. And uh, these three are going to do a local wild story. And I'm going to do a national wild story for our... We actually have a lot of out-of-towners. We've got Denver. What else do... Uh, Boston. Boston. Woo! Uh, and then our listeners at home when this episode comes out. This will be coming out on Wednesday. Kara's from here. From from here. From work is here. <laughs> so Denver International. Hey. We have international people here. Hey. I'm joking. I know that's not international. <laughs> and Jennifer. I don't know where Jennifer is. She brought cookies that are amazing. Uh, yeah. Says Woot for story on the cookies. And 555 Wild. <laughs> it's Wait, amazing. You, ha you haven't said it yet. Woot for story. Yeah. Woot for Courtney, I can see Live you trembling show. holding Live that show. cookie. <laughs> I'm shaking. She's like, Woot for cookie. They wouldn't let me have a Xanax because I've never had one before. So they were like, let's not go down that road. We have champagnes, champagne and solo cups. Champagnes. So we're good. Champagnes. We have champagnes. Champagnes. Uh, so also, if you want to go to our website, wildsocietypodcast.com, click on episodes and then click on the live at OKC Pride Fest. You can see pictures from the stories we're about to tell if you want to see those today. Can I tell you, I had a really close encounter in the bathroom that was really scary. There's a... No poop jokes, Chad. There's not... <laughs> You said poop at a live show. That's very disappointing. There's a big blower in the bathroom. I don't know if there was a leak. Okay, that's... Listen, a this fluffer? is a family podcast. There, there's a fluffer in the bathroom? Blower. What? 
<laughs> this is a family podcast. And my nephew is here. Okay. I walk by it and my uh, I have a good hair day today and it almost ruined my hair. I had a duck. So if you go in the, the men's bathroom, be careful. Hmm. All right. Start? Isn't that a great story? <laughs> that was a great story. <laughs> that was it. That was down. Thank end. you for coming. <laughs> okay, we're going to kick it off with Jordan. Yeah. So anyone that obviously listens, which I assume you all do, I, <laughs> I probably have the biggest potty mouth of the group, so I'm going to try to tone it down, but if one slips, I really apologize. <laughs> we warned him, because <laughs> when we record, Bethany can take things out when we're live. That's the real reason why Can't. we're nervous. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> That's why they're over there. They're going to pull the plug. I'm the liability. <laughs> Just, yeah. <laughs> five, 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 wild. Yes. I started off with basically from like the early 1880s to kind of like the 1930s of Oklahoma City about more like the gay laws and that sort of thing. So there once existed. Ooh, gay up. laws. Don't interrupt <laughs> me. There once existed like this little tiny section of Oklahoma City that was heaven for gay men. And by heaven, I mean it was actually called Hell's Half Acre, where <laughs> gay men could and would rent out rooms and brothels to do anything but read the Bible. <laughs> they might have read the Bible. We don't know. <laughs> so hell was basically where the modern convention center would be, the Myriad Gardens, and the Concord Hotel now stand. It was bordered on the east by Front Street, which is now Santa Fe, North by West Grand, which is now Sheridan, West by South Broadway, and South by California. Now you might be asking yourself, what the hell does this have to do with my story? <laughs> See, I said hell already. <laughs> well, it has a lot to do, actually, because my story starts with one such brothel, or rather the madam that ran the brothels, where men could be with other men in secret, and women could be with other women, and learn how to properly sew a flannel shirt. Kidding. I love lesbians. I'm just kidding. Here they are. Yeah. Here they are. There they are. <laughs> it shows us that at this period in time, at the turn of the 20th century in Oklahoma City, more specifically in the 1880s, before the city really boomed, alternative displays of one sexuality was being accepted by residents as long as you kept it private. What happens at the brothel stays at the brothel. YMCA, hello. <laughs> so I'm not going to dive into how OKC actually became a city because that would go forever and it would cut into our drinking time. So <laughs> Very important. Exactly. And I love you guys. But So before the city boomed, Oklahoma City was a newly developed tent city where sex workers were everywhere and sex work in general was pretty in vogue. There was a little madam, and by little, she actually went by the name Big Ann Wynn. Nice. Big Ann was young, vivacious, and weighed over 200 pounds. She quickly became the most notorious madam to ever live in Oklahoma City. She was born in 1863 in Illinois, and when she was 17 years old, she and a friend took a coach to Leadville, Colorado, where she married a saloon keeper and learned her skills of being a madam. A year before the Oklahoma land run, she divorced her husband and remarried, where she took on the last name Wynn. So her and the new hubby basically think Leadville sucks, and they hear about the land run in Oklahoma, and they're like, oh, cool. So they arrived, settled, and they set up shop. Now, this girl knew how to be a hostess. She was like the prairie Martha Stewart, <laughs> but raunchier. <laughs> and she did it better than anyone around. With her business success, 
came the wealth, and with the wealth, she was able to bribe off the police, city officials to really keep her businesses going. Her influence became so great uh, because of the dirt she had and important people of the time that she even influenced the elections going on in the city. Oh, wow. Now, because there were no gay bars back then, queer people would have sought refuge in Hell's Half Acre, especially with the brothels. You could really be yourself in secret. And in secret, you'd want to stay because by 1901, OKC was growing, and along with that came more law enforcement. By 1907, with statehood, prohibition in full swing, and newly elected city officials, laws for homosexuality were on a crackdown. At this time, Oklahoma City had an indecent exposure law, which according to the statute stated, any person who shall conduct himself in a riotous or disorderly manner, or has shall openly use profane or indecent language, or shall indecently expose his or her person, or who shall be guilty of any lewd or lascivious conduct in public, or who shall commit any nuisance upon any street, alley, or sidewalk, or other public places in this city, shall be deemed guilty of an offense. Huh? Isn't that what you were charged with, Chad? Several like, times. Gosh. Everybody at Pride several is going times. to jail. Yeah, several <laughs> times. So virtually any behavior could be deemed as, in, uh, as indecent if the arresting officer decided it to be. This was believed to be used as a generic charge that queer men and women, which mostly men in those days, would be subjected to. It was also easier to plead guilty and just to pay a fine than to fight it. Another source about gay sexuality laws in Oklahoma City can be found in criminal prosecution records for sodomy or crimes against nature. This statute read, Every person who is guilty of the detestable and abominable crime against nature committed with mankind or with a beast. This is where I pause. It's always sexuality compared to bestiality. I really don't want to fuck a goat. There, see, I knew. Oh, it went. you're going to get fined. I'm going to get fine. There it is. <laughs> Our first F-bomb. I'll live. Venmo you. <laughs> I'll Venmo you. <laughs> what do you have against goats? <laughs> You're anti-goat. When it comes to penetration. <laughs> <laughs> my God. <laughs> Remember, uh, this is life. <laughs> and that's my husband. <laughs> You're welcome. Anyway, any Cute. person who is guilty of the detestable and abominable crime against nature committed with mankind or with a beast is punishable by imprisonment in the penitentiary not exceeding 10 years. Any sexual penetration, however slight... <laughs> slight. Just the tip. Just the tip. That's a given. That was an easy joke. It's sufficient to complete <laughs> the crimes easy. against nature. <laughs> So basically, this, this law was made for gay men. This law passed with little debate in both houses of the Oklahoma Territorial Legislature and was signed by Governor George Steele all within a period of two weeks. Oh, wow. However, it would almost be 30 years before Oklahoma City tried its first case involving a violation of this law. The reason for this is maybe because without eyewitnesses, prosecutors needed one of the two people involved to turn on the other one which means that they would have to openly talk about what they did. Authorities probably allowed the men just to plead guilty to a lesser misdemeanor charge, pay a fine, or move on. Basically, they didn't want to be embarrassed. Right. So just kind of under the table, that kind of thing. In July of 1923, one of the first cases of adult-to-adult same-sex behavior was prosecuted in Oklahoma County. On July 4th, Archie Wilson and Blaine Hathaway were probably enjoying fireworks or whatever celebrations were going on. Now, apparently, alcohol had been involved. They were young. It's July 4th. 
I have actually no idea how old they were, but I just assumed they were 18 or older. <laughs> Blaine accompanied Archie back to his room at a rooming house on South Broadway where one thing led to another and Ooh. use your imagination. Apparent, just the tip. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, Was his pet goat there? Man. <laughs> 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 Apparently, someone witnessed this. Two people, in fact. They were arrested, charged, and convicted on July 6th with a sodomy, a natural copulation with the other. Archie Wilson, who had no criminal record at all, was sentenced to five years in the Oklahoma penitentiary, while Blaine Hathaway received the full sentence of 10 years at the same prison in McAllister. I have no idea why one more one got a bigger sentence than the other, I don't know if it was because one was older. Maybe it's different from top to bottom. Oh. I don't know. So what that means, let me explain that, what that means. <laughs> moving on, moving on. Both of them did appeal their convictions, but with no success. During the 1930s, possibly with the rapid population growth in Oklahoma City, sodomy prosecutions became more common with 26 cases in Oklahoma County between 1930 to 1939 compared to just 12 in the 1920s. Actually, one of the first cases of drag being prosecuted was actually in 1927 by former Oklahoma City Police Sergeant J.W. Barry. Yeah, I'm going to say your name. <laughs> Calling you out, Barry. In September of that year, Barry was riding in a streetcar, or a, I guess a trolley. Back then, they were trolleys. Near Grand and Broadway, when a suspicious-looking woman caught his attention, getting into the same streetcar. That woman was 16-year-old Miguel Gibson, dressed in full drag, including the undergarments. Barry stopped the streetcar immediately and took Miguel to police headquarters. Oh, wow. Miguel argued that it was simply a dare, but no one bought it because he also had the undergarments on as well, as well as a face full of makeup. He was held for investigation. Something interesting to note here is that Barry was actually no longer a police officer at the time, but simply just because he took him in, they didn't really care. He wow. was there... He was going to be charged with something. This didn't seem to matter. The Daily Oklahoman published his arrest on the front page, which caused his family a great deal of embarrassment. This was all by design. By printing the names and the addresses of the offenders, the Oklahoma City police and community leaders hoped to dissuade other men from following their examples and shine a light on the humiliation that would be shown should they step outside the accepted gender, gender and sexual norms. For women during this time period, it wasn't, it wasn't the same arena. They, gay women back then wasn't seen as shocking as gay men. It, I don't know why, that it just wasn't. There was uh, famously a woman named Dorothy Billy Tipton. She was a world-famous jazz musician from Oklahoma City, and she lived in Oklahoma City through this time period. She lived her life as a cross-dresser. In fact, what's fascinating about Billy, as she went by, she worked professionally as a man and presented herself as a man in her private life. She openly lived with a woman, and many Oklahoma City residents knew this and accepted it. Wayne Benson, who was a bass player, she, who, he worked with Billy in Oklahoma City, said, I quote, Well, there again, it was common knowledge, you know, with the band and the guys and everything, that she was female. To me, there was nothing wrong with her. I really didn't see anything unusual, really. No one thought anything about it around here. Despite the risks of being fined or imprisoned, queer Oklahoma City residents continued to boldly express their sexuality over the years and sought out friends and partners. And as we all knew, Oklahoma City 
queer community thrived, and here we are today. However, it wasn't always easy. In 1997, the Oklahoma legislature revised parts of the sodomy statute, reducing the penalty to two years imprisonment. This is just in 1997. A fine of $1,000 1, or both. This law was short-lived because in 1999, a new law made same-sex sodomy punishable by up to 20 years in prison. That's crazy. They increased 99? it. 1999? Wow. Same-sex sexual activity has been legal only in Oklahoma since 2003, when the United States Supreme Court struck down all state sodomy laws with its ruling in Lawrence versus Texas. And that is my story. That is, that's wild. 2003. 2003. I had, I had no idea. Wow. So just in the yeah. last 18 years. Yeah. Man. That's sick that they increased it in the 90s, the <laughs> penalty. <laughs> They're like, well, no, wait, just kidding. I thought you were going to say they, <laughs> they got rid of it. No. Yeah. Well, way to end on a high note. There. <laughs> <laughs> I love hitting on a high note. Now we have Courtney. <sighs> Breathe Court, through your Court. nose and out through your mouth. Right? Let's just hope I don't pass out, y'all. Do you want to chug your champagne before you go? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, I brought my drink, y'all. Those who listen. This episode is brought to you by Kim and Jack. <laughs> in a bottle. In a bottle. Sorry. I'm just glad Jordan's story didn't have any demons in it. He tends to like to do those, <laughs> make me cry. Uh, she sits there, and it's not like she's bawling. Tears just uncontrollably flow from fill her with face. water. Okay, so today I'm going to talk about Tony Sinclair and the Inferno. Woo! <laughs> Yay, people know it. Are you hus- excited? Your husband's laughing oh, at you. Oh, by the way, Ben is here. Oh, ben is ben. here. Woo! Front and center uh, right there. As There's... he sinks down in his chair. <laughs> <He's> like, <laughs> he oh. said, don't point me out. I was like, people are going to want to know that you were here. Look at that sex bomb. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> he sat right in front of me and Chad on purpose. <laughs> Are you buttoning up your shirt? Oh, he buttoned it down. <laughs> oh, he took a button off. He unbuttoned his <laughs> <Whoa>. shirt. <laughs> okay, I am doing mine. Mine's in the 40s and 50s. So the 40s and 50s female impersonation shows were wildly popular. Drag balls also became popular during this time. Um, that's, a, that's too easy. I'm Drag not even balls. touching Drag it. balls. Drag balls. Drag balls. Drag balls were often held on Halloween so that they wouldn't receive community hostility. Mm. Drag balls were not much different than the typical female impersona- impersonation. I drag balls. <laughs> I'm saying it over and over again just for you. Okay, good. And you made me lose my place. Thanks. <laughs> it was a Beezlebub. Yeah. Yes. Beezlebub. 100%. <laughs> Performers wore gowns and had routines, often singing with their own voices but drag balls specifically targeted gay and lesbian audiences. Drag balls were one of the very first attempts to establish a gay public presence in OKC. Roger Pritchard and Bill Mitchell, owners of the Mayflower Lounge, started sponsoring the Halloween drag balls. But once venues began to catch on to the events happening and not allowing them to return, the men decided to open their own. In 1958, Pritchard and Mitchell opened Inferno, which was OKC's first drag bar. It was located at 9200 South Shields. Inferno was in the perfect location for success. During the 50s, the area was unincorporated into Cleveland County, meaning OKC and Norman police had no jurisdiction in the area. 
Jim McMurray remembers the Inferno saying, the first bar I went to, Inferno, I looked around and thought, my God, it was gay. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like fun. (laughs) Yeah. We've got some flag waving going on. (laughs) Yeah. Anyone of any age could go and the cops couldn't touch you. Now, after you were through partying, you got in your car and sat there until you were sober because the cops were waiting on each side. Oh, wow. That's smart. I started going there when I was 13. Oh. It was just a building with female impersonators, shows. It was just wide open. Of course, they had tremendous business because most gay men like young, young men. Oh. Is that true? I mean, I mean, Jordan is younger than is, You yes. ain't right. You ain't right. <laughs> <laughs> When cops did approach the Inferno, the club would use red, blue, and white lights to warn their customers to grab a member of the opposite sex to make it look normal, wow. hide their booze, and stop having sex. I so, thought you were say hide their boobs. <laughs> that too. <laughs> hide it all. Cops are here. Inferno was one of the first clubs to hold female impersonation shows almost every weekend. Up until that point, shows were held mainly on Halloween for the drag balls. Mm. Or at straight clubs and bars. Inferno was also one of the first clubs to cater directly to the gay and lesbian community. Before this, gays and lesbians typically stayed separate from each other. And the shows only catered to straight people's entertainment. Tony Sinclair, one of the best female impersonators from OKC, began his career touring with the U.S. Jewel Box Review. Jewelbox Review frequented OKC in the 1950s, again, for straight crowds. One local entertainer remembered that the traveling Jewelbox Review had a huge impact on the Oklahoma City drag scene. That place was packed when they came, gay or straight, it didn't matter. Mm. Tony was extremely talented. He was a wardrobe designer and tailor. He made custom specialized outfits for showgirls and striptease artists, not only in Oklahoma City, but all over the Southwest. He would impersonate celebrities such as Marilyn Monroe, which is one of our faves, Mae West, and Diana Ross. Nice. He would do extensive research on the celebrity and go as far as studying their mannerisms for his show, like extreme commitment. He was most known for his impression of Diana Ross, and there's a rumor that he once performed the opening act to her show and shocked the audience when she actually came out on stage because they thought he was her. I love that. Oh, wow. That's amazing. I got to meet her once. Just a little side note. Really? Yeah. Legendary. Chad does a really good Diana Ross impression. And here it is. No. (laughs) Denied. I think I just pulled something trying to do that. (laughs) You are the old one of the group. And I feel it every day. Sinclair was a huge reason for the success of the Inferno and a large part of the acceptance of the queer community into OKC. He created the Girls Review drag show at the Inferno that had an incredible lineup of performers. One of the performers, Gil Ray, was known for his high kicks, splits, and impression of Judy Garland, which I love Judy Garland. Did she do high kicks (laughs) and splits? Possibly. Sure. I don't remember that in The Wizard of Oz. Who doesn't do high (laughs) kicks and splits? They cut that scene from Wizard of Oz. (laughs) Tyler liked that one. (laughs) Gil was also known for wearing full drag while working out on his farm in rural Oklahoma. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's the best thing I've ever heard. Wait, what? That could be yes. hot, right? <laughs> out there so plowing he's the like fields on in his full tractor drag. in full drag. He's like out there on a tractor in drag. <laughs> yes. Wow, Damn. I love that. That's commitment. It would probably be really hot. Yes. 
He first came to OKC to show animals at an FFA convention and eventually got introduced to Inferno and Tony Sinclair. So that's how he decided to come here and start doing drag. The Girls Review began to travel around Oklahoma and Texas to perform shows. Gil Ray remembers one trip with the group. She thinks my director's sexy. I'm just like, <laughs> <laughs> that was his opening song. I'm just picturing oh my that. God. That, that's what he came out to every time, night he performed. Oh god. <laughs> I got a tear. We went to Fort Worth once while we were having an, while they were you having did? What? Is this a person? This story? is yes, Gil Ray. Oh, okay. Gilray saying this, sorry. We went to Fort Worth once while they were having an election for something and nobody told us. The girls' review was there and you could not get into that bar. It was so crowded. Suddenly, the Texas Rangers, the Texas Liquor Board, and about 15 other authorities came down on us. I was out there doing the show and had just done a high kick when Tony said, Queen, Queen, it's a raid. <laughs> we did that last get night. Off. Remember that? Yeah. <laughs> get off the stage. They put us all in the back, and Tony told us not to take any of our clothes off. We had showgirls, beautiful, strong men, everything. Anyway, I had my jeans nearby and was going to change, but the cops wouldn't let me. So I went over to them, wearing pasties, and said, Do you know what they call these in Chicago? The unsuckables. (laughs) (laughs) I told Ben to wear pasties today, but he didn't. Are they underneath? Yeah, we don't know for sure. We don't know for sure. We just use painter's tape. That's all I have. <laughs> Those guys just died laughing and I was able to change. We all had to go to jail and pay a $90 fine. They put us in the drunk tank and what did we do but the whole damn show for them. Oh my God, that's amazing. In and jail? They, yeah, and I bet they loved every minute of I it. I love it so much. I'm sorry for they anyone that's them. looking at my butt crack by walking. <laughs> <laughs> I looked. I did too. <laughs> oh my God. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Tony Sinclair in the Inferno really set a blaze for female impersonation entertainment in Oklahoma. Oklahoma City was known for having amazing shows, which I agree that they still do. Yes, we do. It is a rumor that Frank Sinatra and Johnny Carson, as well as many other celebrities, would travel to Oklahoma City to see the shows. Listen, I believe it. I have seen drag in other places, and I would say ours rank among the very best I've ever seen. For sure. We can put on a good show, yeah. mm-hmm. especially Chad in the living room <laughs> with his chips. We had a really good show Sunday night. We had a private show that we did at, at Phoenix Rising. Mm. This video. Those three boys sitting back there. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, in 1959, the fall of the Inferno began. That February, the Inferno, along with three other clubs, were raided by police. Even though the establishment was in the unco- unincorporated area, it did not mean that they were completely untouchable from the law. Inferno was cited for many things, but one of them being selling alcohol to minors. This led them to lose their liquor license, which is really unfortunate. In the summer of 1959, Olin Garner, a county sheriff, found the body of a 29-year-old woman inside Inferno. Oh, wow. The woman had committed suicide using a pearl-handled pistol. Oh, wow. No one knew why she chose to end her life at the Inferno. Things between Pritchard and Mitchell also began to fall apart. They decided to sever ties and lease the club to a man named Bill Kennedy. When the lease expired, Pritchard, told, pr- 
Pritchard sold the Inferno to his mother in 1962, who turned it into an unsuccessful country western bar that closed shortly after it opened, which we don't really need another country western <laughs> bar here. True, true. According to Aaron Bockhofer, the real significance of the Inferno rests in the fact that it provided gay and bisexual men with with one of the first truly openly gay settings in which to congregate in Oklahoma City. The Inferno paved the way for many drag clubs we know and love today all over OKC. Tony Sinclair, who was said to be the finest female impersonator ever to perform in Oklahoma City, passed away on February 18th, 2017. One of his online memorials states, an Oklahoma City drag icon, bar owner, businessman, philanthropist, philanthropist, local celebrity, fashion diva, and one hell of a man. Yes. I love that. So yeah, that is queen. the story of Tony Sinclair in the Inferno. Great job, Courtney. Great job. You survived. You didn't Loot pass story. out. You did it. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure I just blacked out through all of that, but that's okay. Cheers. Cheers to surviving your that. Your mom recorded the whole thing, so you oh, can Oh, I don't it doubt later. it. Oh my Are God. you serious? Oh my God. So when Courtney talks about her mom being a groupie, she's not kidding around. She's live streaming. <laughs> my mom, Wanda, her best friend Brenda. Yes, they are no. groupies. groupies. Now that I know we're live, pass. Go ahead. You're, you're up. No. Fine. Okay. Oh, thank God. Yo, I feel so good right now. Oh my God, I can tell. You're talking about your butt crack. I can tell you're feeling good. Oh God. Okay. Am I up next? Yep. Chad yeah. is up. Okay. I'm doing the story called The Pink Tea Queens, Class, Status, and Position Within the Respectable Queer World. Respectable? Respectable. <laughs> respectable. I took this one because obviously I'm the most respectable. <laughs> respectable queer in Oklahoma City. Um, I'm right? glad it's you today and not me. I mean, respectable. For most of the 1900s. <laughs> God. Okay, ready? For most of the 1900s, beginning around the 20s, there were two types of gay men in Oklahoma City. Those in the lower and middle class were more, more often out. They attended gay bars. Some had openly gay relationships. In general, they lived a pretty out lifestyle for that period of time. Then there was another class of gay men. These were powerful men who were middle to upper class or those who had professions that were licensed in some way or they had political jobs. In other words, being outed would be detrimental to their career or life livelihood. Examples included doctors, lawyers, and politicians. So to hide their gay or bisexual orientation, the second type of men either formed groups that would appear to the outside world as some sort of fraternal, fraternal business society or would together join groups that were actually straight dominated but would take them sort of out of town so they could live out their fantasies. Hence the name uh, pink tea queens. So I, I didn't actually know what the connection with that name was, so I had to look it up. So back in the 1900s, a group of badass women, hey, um, as yeah. you love to say, these women would meet, um, they would talk about uh, things like voting rights for women, and they would meet under pink tea. So they would meet, and if men or women that came by they didn't uh, trust, they would start talking about like things like, oh, I love your hat, or this, this tea is delicious. And then oh. when those people would pass, they would start talking about political things. So that's yeah. where this name Pink Tea Queens come from. It was code. So some background on, on Oklahoma City. So when I moved here in 2003, there really wasn't anything gay friendly about the downtown area. Did you move here? Because that was the year that they legalized. 
As soon as I heard, <laughs> I just, oh my God. As soon as Chad I heard. Chad booked that flight yes, direct. I was right? like, as soon as. Sodomy's legal. Expedia.com. Okay, see. One way ticket. Cheap places to live. That's so funny. And that is the end of my story. That's how I got here. <laughs> so when I moved down here, there wasn't really anything gay friendly about downtown. So, and it turns out that Oklahoma City about 100 years ago wasn't that different. There were gay friendly bars downtown. And one could easily find gay bar or bars that cater to, to gay men with a steady flow of male sex workers. And the general point is that these bars allow these closeted men to go to places where they could avoid their straight counterparts from the legislature, the hospital, the courtroom, or wherever else they worked. Um, the paper that we talked about points out that these men in the 1940s and 50s came generally from two streams. Um, they were the offspring of pioneering, founding rich Oklahoma City families, or they came um, out of the military, which sounds super hot. <laughs> <laughs> because a lot of these men uh, were upper class. They held lavish parties at their homes where other members of the Pink Tea Party would come. And often these parties were in Heritage Hills or Nichols Hills. And this just keeps getting better. And I smell an after party. <laughs> <laughs> there were drag queens that performed occasionally. And these weren't often sex parties, but they could turn into that. Um, and there were usually drugs like marijuana, which, as we all know, is the devil's weed. <laughs> and I was, I was reading this. I was, I was super impressed by the planning of these men because you have to remember this is like 70 years or so before social media. Yeah. So the planning had to occur in advance. And they had to be careful about who, who they told. But one thing going for them, though, is how important the secret society is. Um, they couldn't really go out to the bars. And by the, the mid-century, gay bars in Oklahoma City weren't as strong as they were earlier in the century as straight men would actually patrol like 39th street area looking for cars that they recognized at the bar so they can then turn them in at work to be fired. Oh my gosh. Oh. Wow. So these men treasured these parties and maybe as importantly, think about what making these important social connections could do to your career. Yeah. If you could make these connections. Um, then there was also a subset of, of gay men, those who simply just looked down on middle or lower class gays and preferred to be with those who are rich and the author interviewed an architect uh, and an interior designer from this period. And here's a quote from him. There were sufficient enough partners that I didn't seek out others. And I'm something of a snob anyway. So I looked for people of my social standing or better, even somebody that could help my career. Wow. I think he, True sounds, love. I think he sounds fantastic. <laughs> well, I'm looking for a sugar daddy with a boat. Sugar daddy with a boat. <laughs> hey. And $200. <laughs> Weekly. <laughs> and to be honest, this kind of snobbery goes on in 2021. There are a lot of gays who think they are better than everyone else. <laughs> but psychologically, this classness uh, and hiding isn't, isn't healthy. Young gay men uh, hardly see any openly successful gay men in Oklahoma City. The only rumored ones to be gay are married. Uh, but there's one big, big exception to the rule. And I didn't know anything about this part of the story. According to many, one of the most successful mayors in Oklahoma uh, City's history was gay. And we're going to bring him out. <laughs> Just kidding. I he's, wish. Uh, are we going to roll him out? Because I assume he's dead. He's dead. <laughs> he's dead. His name was George Shirk. Um, and I'm going to spend the rest of my story talking about him. Shirk was born in 1913. His father was an attorney. And his mom was sharp and instilled a sense of curiosity in her son. Shirk was an athlete in high school and after college passed the bar and went on to work at his father's law firm. 
When World War II broke, he served. In fact, and this is pretty impressive, he stood out so much that he went on to become the youngest colonel ever promoted under Dwight Eisenhower. So he was a badass. Nice. Upon returning from war, he went to work for Oklahoma City. He does a lot of important stuff. In 1947, he creates a podcast widely recognized as the world's first podcast. What? I made that up. Okay, I was like, (laughs) um... But he does do a lot of important stuff. Is this whole story made up? Yeah. It is. I was like, yesterday I woke up and I was like, I don't have a story. And I was just like, there's a guy named George Shirk. Not true. So all this time, rumors are swirling that he's gay. He's a member and founder of the Bachelors Club, which is made up of very high society single men. They take on civic responsibilities and social obligations. One of the club's marquee events was the debutante party held around Christmas. George naturally volunteered to MC the event. By all counts, he had a natural flair for it. While there were no doubt straight men in the club, um, many never wanted to marry. The Bachelors Club was viewed by many as a way to introduce gay men into the secret pink tea queen society. Um, they were able to travel together, and the fact that one of their marquee events featured underage girls that they had no interest in, in to them sexually made sense. Shirk's work in the city eventually led him uh, led a group of citizens to encourage him to run for mayor. Um, at the age of 51, the unmarried Shirk won. And that marital detail didn't go unnoticed by the Oklahoman, which was ultra-conservative at the time. The editorial page referred to him as, quote, the 51-year-old bachelor mayor, and many viewed that as a not-so-veiled swipe at his sexual orientation. Shirk's tenure as mayor is marked with many successes, in fact, long before MAPS, he, he led the charge to get voters to approve a sales tax that transformed downtown, including bringing in the myriad botanical gardens. Really? His success allowed him to lead a semi-open life. At a time when police were shutting down the city's gay bars, the police chief was overheard telling his officers to be careful. Quote, be careful, our dear mayor won't have any place to socialize. So um, the mayor also was a, he was an architect by heart. And he built his own house, literally built it at Lake Aluma, which is yeah. the gorgeous part of town on oh, the northeast really? side. Um, and for some reason, Truman Capote, the famous author, st- stayed there one night. So there's mm-hmm. a there's a quote in the in the paper that that we took our source from. Um, this is right after Capote finished in Cold Blood, which is a great true crime novel. That I'm sure some of you have read. Yeah, Truman was on his way to New Orleans, which we all love. He had gotten the manuscript off, and it was party time. For some reason, he stopped here. George Shirk was an extremely hairy man, and like uh, a lot of people who are very hairy, he was a little flinchy on the subject. For some reason, I'm going to read this in a British accent. I don't know. I don't know. You always try to do the British accent. So I'm not going to do it. Do it. No, No, I'm not going to do it. No, 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 no. So one of his gay nick. So one of his gay nicknames, which you never used to his face unless you wanted to be slapped upside the head, George was not a bashful kind of fairy was Gorilla Mary. Oh, wow. <laughs> Entirely appropriate if he was sans shirt. Well, he was out there in a fairly brief pair of trunks, and by this time, Truman had too many martinis, and he said something about, oh, it's Gorilla Mary. Oh, wow. Shirk, who had also had a martini or two himself, picked Truman up and threw him in the pool. Oh, my gosh. And that was the end of the party. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why. Despite the pool incident, there's a lot going well. Uh, but then he gets in a lover's triangle with two brothers. Uh-oh. And I'm just thinking it's like Nick and Joe Jonas. Because <laughs> that would be my brother's fantasy. Oh, the poor third one. 
Oh, I know. <laughs> but he's still good looking. He was in a relationship with a law student named Wendell Howell, who was about 30 years younger than Shirk. Of course, the gay community just had to give them a nickname, which was Gorilla Mary, Mary and the First Lady. The couple had lots in common beyond law. They were Civil War history fanatics and both were into politics. I have a joke here, but I don't know if I should say it. Just say it. The mayor even tapped (laughs) Wendell to be on several committees to improve the city. (laughs) The pause and look. (laughs) But all was not perfect. Wendell was known to have affairs and run-ins with the police. But things get really interesting when Wendell was sent to Vietnam so Shirk did what many, what any other mayor of a big city would do. He started dating Wendell's other apparently gay brother, Scott. Scott had an even bigger taste for drugs and alcohol, so the pairing was bad from the start. Things get worse when Wendell returns for Vietnam and Scott doesn't want to be replaced. There are a couple incidents involving gunfire and one incident in the spring of 1967, a drunken Scott and some teenage boys after leaving the gay Paseo District Club Lee's Lounge shoot some buildings at Northwest 27th in Robinson. The Oklahoman runs a story about it in which the mayor admits that Scott lives at his estate. It's, of course, embarrassing. These people are dramatic. I know. I know. Doesn't it sound exhausting? Jordan and I go home and we watch like the housewives and I'm like, I'm tired. This is around the time that many believe Shirk is considering a run for governor or even senator. He eventually decides not to, possibly because of this incident. Shirk never marries and doesn't go on to higher office. He died on March 23rd, 1977. So he didn't even get to see Star Wars. Which is the you real tragedy. get that in there somewhere. Which is the real tragedy Travesty. of the story. Every episode. Every episode. It has to be Green Day or Star Wars, John. Green Day would have been about five at this time. <laughs> go green. Who said that? <laughs> nice. Thank you. Obviously, this isn't the only famous Oklahoma politician or high society member who has led a similar lifestyle, but it's definitely the most famous example of Oklahoma City's Pink Tea Club, um, which I'm sure continues in some sort to this day. And that is the story of Oklahoma City's Pink Tea Queens. I'm going to get it. Class, status, and position within the respectable queer world, which I am now inducting myself into as the class of 2021. Thank you. <laughs> Respectable. I feel like when you hold your mic, you need to go like this. <laughs> Respectable queer world. We didn't bring any tea. I didn't. So I'm doing a national story. The theme of... These are already fogging up. The theme of Pride Fest this year... Heat. I know. it's a lot of heat over here. Uh, <laughs> is Rainbow Revolution. So I wanted to do a story that kind of fell in line with that. Last week's episode, if you're caught up, uh, I talked about the Stonewall Uprising, but today I'm going to talk about an uprising that actually predates it, which I didn't know about. So Stonewall might be the most well-known act of rebellion by the LGBTQ plus community, but there were several uprisings across America even 10 years before. The Civil War? (laughs) No, 10 years before Stonewall. You're so dumb. I love it. (laughs) Oh, God. Okay. So the uprising I'm going to talk about is the Compton's Cafeteria Riot of 1966. So my primary source is the documentary, shocker, called Scream Queens, Screaming Queens. Scream Queens. I I remember that show on Fox. Not not Scream Queens. Screaming Queens. The Riot at Compton's Cafeteria, which is on Prime, if you want to watch it. 
Um, the documentary is made by Dr. Susan Stryker, who is a transgender historian. I thought you were going to say Dr. Seuss. <laughs> it's like, that's a really curveball. I know. That's a wild story. <laughs> In 1995, Stryker was sifting through the archives of the Gay and Lesbian Historical Society in San Francisco when she discovered a document that referenced a riot at Compton's cafeteria. She then spent years investigating what happened because it had gone undocumented. They didn't even uh, publish it in any newspapers or anything. And she was interviewing folks who were there that night or who lived and worked in the area at that time. So Compton's Cafeteria was a restaurant in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco. It was a 24-hour diner that grew to become a safe haven for the transgender and drag queen community that actually kind of filled the Tenderloin District. So according to NPR.org, Compton's was, quote, centrally located, adjacent to the hair salon, the corner bar, and the bathhouse. Convenient. Exactly. And provided a well-lit and comfortable haven for trans women performing in clubs or walking the streets in San Francisco's Tenderloin neighborhood. I can't get over What area are you from in the city? Oh, I'm in the Tenderloin district. <laughs> Does that have something to do with like the meat pack? Like meat packing. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. oh that's nice. I'm in the meat packing district. Oh. I'll see you later. <laughs> okay. Felicia Elizondo described Compton's like this. Quote, everybody would die for window seats just to show off. Every time the door opened, everybody looked to see who was coming. Because, you know, as soon as the door opened, everybody wanted to parade their fashion. According to Amanda St. James, quote, it was a delightful time. It's like a fairy tale you wouldn't believe. But there's the nightmare of the truth of it all. So if you look up tenderloin in the dictionary, obviously you'll find reference to meat. But the second definition. <laughs> Juicy. <laughs> the second definition of tenderloin is actually a vice-ridden district controlled by corrupt policemen, which I had no idea. Or policewoman. Or policewoman. Police person. Police person. San Francisco's tenderloin district, where Compton's cafeteria was located, uh, was a rough part of town. It's where the LGBTQ plus community was annexed to. Uh, and is also where sex work happened regularly, drug dealing was common, as well as gambling rings. But the police knew all about the activity that was going on and took advantage of it by demanding payoffs to look the other way. Susan Cook described it like this, quote, Police would give the people who were in indeterminate gender the message that they belonged pretty much in the tenderloin, which at the time was kind of a gay ghetto, a very slummy gay ghetto. Turk Street became the main thoroughfare of the Tenderloin District because it was lined with hotels that offered, quote, transient rooms. The El Rosa Hotel in particular became home to a community of transgender women who had been kicked out of their own homes and families. During this time in America, it was nearly impossible for the transgender community to find jobs, which frequently forced them to turn to sex work. Compton's Cafeteria became a safe place for the community to meet up in the early morning hours to chat and catch up, but also to check in on each other and make sure they had survived the night, as violence against the transgender community in particular was extremely brutal. There was even a serial killer roaming the streets at this time who only targeted the transgender women in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco. Did he use a steak knife? <sighs> <laughs> We'll, we'll, we'll have to cover that on another on another episode. Can we get another hour? 
<laughs> According to Tamara Ching, quote, we always had to load our handbags up. A drink, a pint. Yes. <laughs> Let me start over. According to Tamara Ching, quote, we always had to load our handbags up. A drink, a pint, or a half pint of Southern Comfort and put the empty bottle in my bag. When people got out of line, we'd crack it over their head. And if that didn't put them down, then we took off our shoe, high heels. Because if they were going to mess with us, we weren't going to let people hurt us. And especially these girls who had their faces pumped up with silicone. If you touch their face and try to hurt their face, they'll kill you. End quote. Yeah, I would. <laughs> you guys know something about that, I think. What, what does that mean? I'm just, I don't know. I just get a little Botox from time to time. <laughs> oh, there's a dance party. Is this a going dance on. party now? <laughs> As a- I'm sorry, what is going on? <laughs> okay. Carry on. Okay. As Compton's cafeteria grew in popularity among among the queer community. Can you turn your mic up? <laughs> Actually, yes. <laughs> Okay. As Compton's cafeteria grew in popularity amongst the queer community, so did the police presence. According to Amanda St. James, we got harassed quite a bit by the police in Compton's. A lot of times they would come in and just pick us up if we were eating for no reason and put us in jail for female impersonation, end quote. Tamara Ching remembers it like this, quote, the police are very, very bad. You could be taken to jail at any time, at any second, for no reason at all. In July of 1966, a new social justice group called Vanguard was formed. Vanguard was a militant gay organization, quote, of, by, and for the kids on the street. And of course, the members of Vanguard would meet at Compton's cafeteria. As the demand for social justice in the queer community began to build, so did the friction between Compton's management and their late night patrons. Compton started turning members of Vanguard away, so they organized, and on July 18, 1966, they picketed the cafeteria. So a couple weeks later, on an August night, no one knows the exact date because it wasn't recorded in any papers or anything like that at the time. Hmm. A few weeks after the Vanguard's picketing, work, work, work. <laughs> <laughs> God, I've been waiting to do that. <laughs> so on an August night, a few weeks after the Vanguard's picketing, the tension building in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco finally boiled over. A policeman entered Compton's and grabbed one of the queens. She responded by throwing her coffee in his face. The whole restaurant erupted. People threw everything they could get their hands on at the police officers. Amanda St. James says, quote, Oh, the sugar shakers went through the windows and the glass doors. I think I put a sugar shaker through one of those windows. The trans women and drag queens fought off the police, even using their heavy purses to beat them off. Beat them off? <laughs> I just read that, too. Yeah, okay. You caught it? I just got it. That, I just, that went over I my head. I can't believe it. it. Did you get that one? <laughs> okay. According to Dr. Susan Stryker, quote, the cops were treated outside to call for backup. But cafeteria customers, maybe 60 in all, poured into the streets through the broken doors and windows and kept fighting as the paddy wagons pulled up. Before it was over, a police car was destroyed, the corner newsstand was set on fire, and years of pent-up resentment boiled out into the night. Amanda St. James, who was there, remembers, quote, There was a lot of joy after it happened. A lot of them went to jail, but there was a lot of, quote, I really don't give a damn. This is what needs to happen. 
What happened that night at Compton's cafeteria changed San Francisco. Felicia Elizondo remembers, quote, there was a big change. We can dress like women all the time. We don't have to be little effeminate fairies anymore. We can be who we are inside. Amanda St. James recalls, quote, the cops just left us alone, so we just did our thing. We bought our women's clothes. We tried our clothes on in the women's store in the dressing room, which they wouldn't let us do before. So it was just a matter of coming together. The San Francisco Police Department actually appointed a man his name was Elliot Blackstone, to be a liaison between the police and the queer community. Blackstone said, quote, they, the police, hated me. They thought it was wrong for a policeman to associate with these, quote, faggots. But <sighs> I know. He says, but they needed help, so I helped. Elliot Blackstone started the first transgender support group in the country. He also worked with a legislator to change the laws against cross-dressing, Elliot began training other officers on transgender issues and even took offerings up at his church to buy hormones for transgender people when the city refused to fund them. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, as we're all aware, the queer community still faces harassment and inequality today, but the brave folks at Compton's Cafeteria on that night in 1966 set our progress in motion. So I'm going to end with a quote from Tamara Ching. Quote, the gay movement started in the Tenderloin. Basically, in the 60s, we decided to fight back. This was even pre-Stonewall. We decided to fight back because we were tired of being harassed by the police or to be used as scapegoats, as being called derelicts or degenerates. So we stuck up for gay people, and we were all one community. And that's the story of the Compton Cafeteria oh, Riots yeah. of 1966. How awesome is that? Yeah. I'll never look at a Tenderloin the same way. <laughs> <laughs> that's our show thank you guys so much for coming out we love y'all it means more than you know i hope you love the live music <laughs> that's just for y'all that's called multitasking we really <laughs> wanted to turn it up for you today <laughs> give you a challenge if you haven't already uh open your apple iphone and go to the podcast app give us a follow or subscribe it really helps us on the charts um, another way you can support us is go to our website, click on shop, and check out our merch shop. You can find us on Twitter at Wild Society Pod or on Instagram at Wild Society Podcast. And we want to give a, a huge shout out to Rachel yes. and yes, OKC Pride Alliance Woo! for having us out here for Pride Fest, the inaugural Pride Fest in our amazing city. So thank you guys so much for coming. We love you. We did it. We did it. We survived. You didn't, you didn't pass out. Story. You didn't I'm pass awake. Out. <laughs> oh. I'm not crying. We're good. We have a sh another live show tomorrow. We didn't want to tell no, you. No, no, no. <laughs> You're doing that on your own. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, we Thank love you, you guys. all. We love you Thank so you much. Thank you for coming. Thank you. It means a lot. Keep listening. We love you all. Yes. <laughs>